Let me open us with a word of prayer and then I will jump right into 1 Peter chapter 3. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day to worship you. Lord, as we come to the end of 2018, we thank you for all the blessings that we received this year and we thank you for the challenges that we endured and we thank you for your continuing daily faithfulness that is not marked by a calendar but it's marked by your love. And we pray, Lord, for our day-to-day, pray for our teaching in First Peter, that you'll give us clarity to see the truth as it's presented in your word. And I pray for the main services, both this morning and this evening, that you'd help it to be a blessing to you and that your people would be encouraged and strengthened for everything you have in front of us. And Lord, we pray for Pastor Steve and Michelle, that you would help them to heal quickly and overcome these uh, illnesses. And we also pray for Susan Howard as she is traveling from Papua New Guinea to be with her mom who's ill. We pray for her mom that you would protect her and keep her safe. And we pray for the family that's traveling to be here. And we ask that you would make everything go smoothly so that Susan could get back home as quickly as possible. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are... In what is going to be, I think, the sixth message from 1 Peter chapter 3, covering verses 18 to 22, and we are going to wrap all of this up today. When we began this study a couple months ago, I mentioned that there was a lot of controversy, that there were some very challenging passages in this little section of Scripture, but we are past all of that. Now, I'm going to summarize today, but what we're talking about today is the part that's not controversial. So I'm glad to not have to labor to explain things that are challenging. This is great truth that should encourage us. And as you think through, I I keep going back to the big picture of 1 Peter. And it's important for us, but it's important for me to constantly come back to what's the point of all of this. Because for me, it's easy, and I assume some of you could have the same tendency, to get fixated on things and really fall in love with certain passages, but divorce them from the overall context. And we never want to do that when we're studying through a book. And the overall purpose of First Peter is for you and I to live holy lives. That's what it's about. We are supposed to live holy lives. First Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. While the focus of the section that we're in and through the end of the book is on believers dealing with unfairness, unjustness, persecution, things that are happening to them that are not because of what they're doing, but rather it's in spite of what they're doing, it's just because they're believers, all of it is going back to the fact that you and I are supposed to live holy. Even with what we're covering today, the ultimate point of all of this is to give us tools so that we can fight the daily battle against sin. And as we've covered over the last couple of years, I I look back and I didn't realize I started teaching in 1 Peter in the end of, in the fall of 2016, we've seen many areas where we can apply that. But as we are coming into this, our focus in the text we've been studying is really 
about doing the right thing in the midst of injustice. 1 Peter 3.17 was sort of the jumping off point for the section we've been covering for many sessions. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And that's always a challenge for us. Last week, because of the needs of things, Debbie and I um, volunteered to work in the three-year-old section. If you ever want to find me out of my element, follow me to the three-year-olds. They're cute as can be, except they don't listen. (laughs) And they've got unlimited energy. It's a fascinating thing. But it's interesting because even, and there were two-year-olds in the room too, so even with two and three-year-olds, they have an internal sense of that's not fair, give it to me. I had it. It's mine. You can see a toy sitting there that nobody cares about until one other kid grabs it. Nope, no, 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 this injustice, that's my territory. What's the point of all that? It's simply that we have an innate sense ingrained in us that that's not fair. And unfortunately, in our sinful state, that colors everything we do. And what he's trying to say to us is, look, it's okay. Even if you're treated unfairly and you did the right thing, you don't despair. It's better to be in God's will doing that. And as we've gone through verses 18 to 22, his ultimate point is that God can bring good out of injustice. Even if injustice happens to you, don't despair because God works things out for good. So I had a two-part outline that we've been going through, and the first point only took a week, but it's two proofs that God can bring good out of injustice. The first was that the unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. For Christ also died for sins, verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. It was straightforward. It's clear. Jesus' death was unfair, it was an injustice, and yet it brought about our salvation. There was no other hope. So that proves God can bring good out of injustice because Jesus' earthly death was an injustice, and yet it accomplished an eternally wonderful purpose. The second point, and this is what we're going to finish today, and we've spent several weeks covering it, is that the resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. Peter emphasized that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but then he was made alive in the spirit. And I'm going to summarize a lot of teaching here. I can't go into all the details, but as I kept trying to say, here's the big picture, Jesus wins, and if Jesus wins, we win. That's what we need to always remember. If Jesus is victorious, we're victorious because we are in Christ. Even if you suffer for doing the right thing in the end, you'll be rewarded because you'll be in heaven for all eternity with the Lord. But it's the way Peter illustrated that that caused problems. His statement, but made alive in the spirit, as I spent time talking, it just means in the spiritual realm. Whereas before he was limited in the incarnation, he was still God. He was still capable of performing miracles, but he was physically limited. After his resurrection, the physical limitations were gone. He could go anywhere. He still had a resurrected, glorified body, but he could ascend into heaven. And Peter illustrates... I think, and again, I'm just summarizing controversial text, but my position was that Peter is saying that in the spiritual realm, Jesus went and declared victory to demons that had been imprisoned for their own sins in the time of Noah. 
but made alive in the spirit in which all, verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And all he was saying is that certain demons engaged in behavior that was so horrific that God imprisoned them immediately. And they've been sitting in darkness in a place that I think scripture calls the abyss. And they've been sitting there since the time of Noah and they'll be sitting there until the final judgment. But Jesus went to them, the only demonic forces that would not have observed his victory on the cross and said, it's finished. The victory's won. Now, I spent some time talking about what I think the sin was. I think the sin was those demons possessed certain sinful men. They inhabited their bodies. And in the context of that, they mated. That's all in Genesis 6. Not demons with people. That could not happen. But demonically possessed men with women and the offspring were likely demonically influenced and the world was a wicked, wicked place and God wiped it out. But not only did God wipe it out, God imprisoned those demons so that that would never happen again. Has sin stopped? Of course not. Is Satan still free to destroy? He is, under God's sovereign authority. Does Satan still have an army of demons doing wicked things? Of course he does. But some demons overstepped their bounds and God said, that won't happen again. That's who Jesus declared victory to. But then as challenging as that was, Peter uses his historical reference to Noah and the ark, and we covered this, I think it was last week, I'm kind of getting confused on what days they are, but sometime in the past, we covered that he then made an illustration of how that tied into the picture of baptism. And we spent time talking about that. He takes imagery from the illustration and says this was a picture of baptism. And I covered this in detail, and it was last week, But Peter isn't saying baptism actually saves anyone. He's saying the act of baptism, the practice of baptism in the Christian church pictures our salvation. It's not our salvation, but when we obey the Lord's command to be baptized, we're publicly identifying with him, with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he's saying that Moses and his family being saved in the ark by the waters was a picture, just a foreshadowing of the picture that baptism is in terms of representing salvation. He's not teaching that baptism saved us. He's not teaching that it's a requirement for salvation. He's just reminding us that baptism paints a beautiful picture. And it's a beautiful public picture of what has happened if we know Jesus Christ. Now, that all summarized five weeks of teaching to get us to the final portion of the scripture. And this is still upon the second point, the resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. And today, as we come into verse 22, we really see the triumph in its full majesty. Ending verse 21, again talking about the picture of baptism, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. And this is the picture of ultimate victory. And remember, it's a picture that's supposed to give us hope to keep living holy, even if living holy causes us hardship. 
And the focus here, obviously, is Jesus. The subject is Jesus. It's all about Jesus and the exalted position he occupies after his resurrection. The illustrations of him being made alive in the Spirit and the connection to baptism, those are in the background now, and he's just focusing on what we see when we see Jesus. After his resurrection, everything was different. Now, in no way am I saying that Jesus wasn't God and then became God or any of that type of foolishness. Even during the incarnation, Jesus was always God. If you want to occupy your Saturday, engage the Jehovah's Witnesses walking through your neighborhood with that statement. Because they reinterpret John chapter 1 to say that Jesus isn't God. But that's clearly the teaching. In the beginning was the Word, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, familiar verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And during the incarnation, that didn't change. He was still God. John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yet it's clear, while Jesus walked the earth, he didn't fully exercise all the powers of his deity. I will never fully understand how all that's reconciled. I only know what scripture says. He was God and he was man. He did miracles, he walked on water, he raised the dead. But his entire time during the incarnation was in submission to the will of the Father. Again, that's a mystery, it's hard for us to reconcile, but that's the teaching of Scripture. In John 6.38, Jesus made that very clear. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That was even his prayer as he was going to prepare himself for the cross in the garden. Matthew twenty six thirty nine, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus, while he was on the earth, while he was fully God, was a humble servant. Mark 10.45 has powerful words about Jesus. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I've thought about that so many times when I expect something from people. How far afield I was and am when I'm in that mindset from Jesus. But the picture... In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, is not of the humble servant walking the earth and washing the feet of his disciples. As beautiful as that picture is, and as important as that picture is. The picture in verse 22 is that this Jesus, who was the God-man and who was a humble servant after his resurrection, is the king. He has all the authority and all the power, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. 
Again, this is tying in. He's now made alive in the spirit. Not only could he go to the place of darkness and preach to demons, he is in heaven. And the imagery of the right hand of God is very powerful and it's very important. It was an understood custom in the ancient world, separate and apart from scripture even, that the one who was at the right hand of the king had the king's blessing, had the king's authority, and had the king's power at his disposal. Scripture over and over talks about God and his right hand as a source of authority and as a source of power. Just a few illustrations in a Bible software, if you type in right hand of God, you'll get a lot of references, but a few illustrations. In Exodus 15, verse 6, says, Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Now, of course, that's a picture. He's not talking about a literal right hand. What he's using it is, is a symbol. It's a picture of authority, of power. Psalm 18.35, You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. Psalm 48.10, As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Because of this repeated imagery and the understanding of the equation of the right hand with power and authority, the Messianic Psalm 110 pictures that very thing. In Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the New Testament made clear repeatedly this psalm was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that in Matthew 22 verses 43 to 45. I'm not going to read that, but Jesus made it clear this is fulfilled. But the writer of Hebrews was emphatic in Hebrews 10, 11 to 13. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That was verse 11, verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So in verse 22, when Peter says that Jesus is at the right hand of God, that's a powerful statement. It means Jesus, who died the unjust death in the flesh, is no longer a victim of injustice. He is the dispenser of justice. He's the ruler. He's the king. He has the full power and authority. And everything is in submission to him from this point forward. I think probably for me, and I don't want to impose my limitations on you, but there's certain phraseology that is so frequent that it loses its wonder for me. But you see in the New Testament over and over and over this imagery of Jesus. I'm going to read several verses. I'll try and give them to you so you can write them down and look them up later. But in Acts chapter 2... Verse 32 and 33, it says, This Jesus raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Acts 5, 30, 31. 
The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Romans 8, 33 to 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Therefore, Colossians 3.1, Colossians 3.1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. One more, Hebrews 1, 3 and 4. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. When the Holy Spirit inspires multiple writers to record the same thing over and over, there's something we should pay attention to. Jesus' presence in heaven is not an afterthought in the New Testament. Another one of those challenging things, God is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere, and yet it also, the picture in Scripture is that God resides in heaven. Psalm 53, 2. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Ecclesiastes 5.2 Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. And we just read where Jesus said I came down from heaven. It's interesting. Peter is using this imagery. He's saying that Christ is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, Peter was one of those privileged individuals. He actually saw him go into heaven. When he was saying this, it had to conjure up things that we can't imagine because he was an eyewitness to the ascension of Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, Acts 1, verses 9 to 11 Verse 9, and after he, Jesus, had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. As they were gazing intently into the sky, they includes Peter, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, angels. Verse 11, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus in case they didn't know where he had gone, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So all of this is supposed to be a picture to beleaguered saints living in a fallen world. We go back to chapter 2, you remember some of them had run-ins with the government. They were told to submit anyway, even though the government was wicked. Some of them were slaves who had wicked, wicked masters and they were told, submit anyway. Jesus was the example. Some people had bad marriages. Behave correctly anyway. 
in all of this, the reminder to us is that whatever things we see going on here, the fact that Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God gives us hope. What's the worst that can happen here? They kill us. At which point we're with Jesus. So it's supposed to be encouragement for us to be holy. To keep moving forward. And the full scope of his power is found at the end of verse 22. Who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Peter is making clear that even the angelic realm is subject to Jesus. What happened on the cross, followed by the resurrection, was the exclamation point on Jesus' power and authority. Now, he mentions angels and authorities and powers. The best understanding is that this is referring to different categories of angels. They're apparently in the angelic world somewhere is an organizational chart. Probably of good angels and probably of fallen angels. The point here is not to wonder about the organizational chart. doesn't matter. I've seen people that try and spend time developing hierarchies of angels and I don't understand it. doesn't matter. What matters is that no matter where they are on the chart, Jesus is over them all. Be they holy angels that never sinned or be they fallen angels. Again, are there different types of angels? There are. I don't know what all types there are, because they use different terminology, but in spiritual warfare, Paul in Ephesians 6.12 talks about rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness. Colossians 2 verse 15 talks about rulers and authorities that Christ made a public display of triumphed over them. The focus of Peter's words is to make clear to us and to emphasize that our hope in the risen Savior is profound and enabled us to endure anything on this earth. to go back and read Colossians 2, 13 to 15. I was going to skim over it, but think about these things when you're dealing with life and struggles. Verse 13 when you were of Colossians 2, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is the victory we already have. Satan and his demonic harmonies that are not in the abyss already, while powerful... And the Bible gives us a lot of tools for spiritual warfare. At the end of the day, they have no ability to resist Jesus who is on the throne. I think that's part of the reason that Peter earlier talked about the fact that Jesus even went to the abyss and preached to imprisoned fallen angels just to show the totality of his dominance. It's all about his victory. 
Again, the truth is supposed to encourage disheartened, suffering believers. I think it encourages for a few reasons. In addition to what I've already said, God promises us all those things in the future, but where are we now? We're here. How many of you encountered anybody last week that sinned? Don't raise your hand. We all did. If for no other reason, then we looked in the mirror. But then you look around and you read the news and what do you see? Wickedness. Escalating on top of wickedness. Multiplied by wickedness. But God called us to work in that type of environment. He told us in that environment to go and make disciples. In that environment, he tells us to go out and make an impact. Alan's going to be going to that environment in Nigeria in a hostile place to spread the gospel. We have hope because even the Great Commission is tied up in Jesus' authority. I'm guilty at times of what's the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples. That, that is true. But the verses before it, verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Then he says, Go. Everything we're called to accomplish on the earth, we have the promise that Jesus has all the authority. If he tells you to go do something that seems impossible to you, go anyway. Why? Because he has all the authority. He's at the right hand. And even when you're weak, the beautiful picture of the scripture we read before is part of him being at the right hand of God as he intercedes for us, which is incomprehensible. And beyond that, as we interact in this world with unbelievers, with hostility, which I really do believe will continue to grow, Jesus and his authority is protecting us no matter what. Romans eight thirty eight and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord. There's nothing we encounter that can pull us away from God's love because Jesus is on the throne. Everything is under his authority. But there are a couple of additional things that seem remarkable and I can't fully grasp, although I know they're true. When I say I can't fully grasp them because I am infected by the limitations of my finiteness and God is infinite. So I inevitably think of things in a temporal way because I'm a temporal creature, meaning I live in time. But there's a sense in which already we share Christ's exalted position. In Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, it says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's profound. We already have an exalted status, an exalted position because of 
these truths about Christ. Not only that, in the future, we're going to experience that even in a more full sense and that he's going to invite us to be with him in that position of power. For example, in Revelation 3, 21, it paints a particular picture. It says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And not only one day will we sit and be invited to sit on the throne, one day in the millennial kingdom, we'll actually exercise power and authority 2 Timothy 2, 11 and the first part of verse 12 says, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelation 26 states a similar truth in a different context. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Those are profound statements that challenge the limits of our thinking. We know they're true because God said them. We can't even understand the full scope of the privilege and benefits we have, and we certainly can't comprehend what it will be like one day. But the point of Peter's words, which are powerful, is to remind us that even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of a sin-filled world where we get beat down and we're tired and we're tempted to say, that's not fair. We know that our Savior's on the throne. One day we'll be with him forever. But in the meantime, him being on the throne tells us all we need to know. We're good. It's an imperfect analogy. But if you are an American citizen, walking on the ground in America has a lot of privileges. Most of us take them for granted. We don't think about them. Now granted, some people have more privileges than others, meaning if you're rich, you've got more access to more things. But the fact remains, we have privileges as Americans when we're here. Now, you step out of this country, they're gone. In Nigeria, they won't care. But while we're here, there's something about our status that is secure. It's safe. If you've ever been in a foreign country where you realize you'd be at the mercy of people who would take corruption and all those types of things, you realize it's comforting to know, whew, we're here. The point of all of this, I think, is a similar picture in that we're citizens of heaven. And everywhere we go, we are under the power and protection of the king of the universe. Even if there's a little bit of injustice, don't, don't panic. Don't despair. Because Jesus has the victory. And if Jesus wins, we win. So let me close our time in prayer and then we'll divide up into our prayer groups. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that our Savior is seated at your right hand. Thank you, Jesus, for interceding for us, for protecting us, 
for enveloping us with your love in such a way that nothing on this earth, no matter how unfair or unjust, can separate us from your love. Lord, help us remember our citizenship in heaven. Lord, it is a challenge to think biblically all the time. It's a challenge to fix our mind on things above, not on the things below. Because the things below nip at our heels constantly. Lord, grow us in our faith. Strengthen us in our knowledge of your word. And Lord, equip us to apply the truths in our lives. Lord, we don't study here just so that we know more. Lord, we want to live holy. Help each and every one of us do that. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.